Brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church, I ask that you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. And I would ask you the question also, have you ever traveled at Mach 2? Twice the speed of sound, 1,354 miles an hour. No, I'm not asking when you're listening to a sermon. I'm saying like air travel. Have you ever traveled that fast in the air? Many people have from Paris, France to New York or New York to London, England on the Concorde, you might remember. The Concorde was the world's first supersonic commercial passenger airplane, which made it possible to cross the Atlantic Ocean in three hours. As you can imagine, Concorde flights were expensive and largely booked by society's privileged and elites who began to enjoy supersonic flight at Mach 2 speeds on this date, January 21st, 1976, when the Concorde made its first flight. Three hours from New York to Paris was possible exclusively on the Concorde until August of 2003, 20 years ago, when the Concorde had run out of favor with its owners and the general public. Why did Concorde run out of favor? What caused the sudden loss of commercial and societal interest in Mach 2 three-hour travel over the Atlantic? On July 25th, 2000, after 24 years of flawless service, Air France Concorde Flight 4590 crashed immediately after takeoff, killing 109 people that were on board. And though they did resume flying the Concorde later that same year, by 2003, the desire and interest to support the supersonic flight of the Concorde was gone. What's the lesson for us? At one moment, you are society's pride and joy, and the next moment, you are the object of public shame and scorn. Because... People are fickle, inconsistent, vacillating, picky, and fussy. Society is full of sinners, and the very nature of sin is continual dissatisfaction with life. Sinners are continually dissatisfied with people, possessions, taxes, inflation, elections, authorities, housing, clothing, food, even supernatural blessings as we see in our story today. Yes, even when blessed beyond measure, sinners increase their complaining and their demanding, which brings us to our lesson in John chapter 6. The Concord's rise and fall in societal popularity is just one recent example of sinners suffering from dissatisfaction. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he hit peak societal popularity by passing out bread in Galilee, only to be quickly discarded for failure to lead an insurrection against Rome as Israel's king. This is what we see in John chapter 6. After Jesus feeds 5,000 men and walks on water, he suffers the most disastrous day in ministry in John 6.66, where we read, as a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. He walks on water. They stop walking with him. He feeds them supernatural barley bread and fish, and they bail on him because they have better things to do than see the Creator continually healing the sick miraculously and only ever speaking truth and prophecy. Speaking of John chapter 6, William Hendrickson notes, one in the same chapter, chapter 6, pictures Jesus, first of all, at the very zenith of his popularity, then suddenly proceeding with rapid strides toward the depth of public scorn. Hendrickson says further, 
The present chapter also reveals more clearly, perhaps, than any other portion of Scripture, the kind of Messiah people wanted. Namely, one who would be able and willing to provide for their physical needs. And herein lies the problem. Many sinful Jews had created a Messiah of their own understanding. Many Jews coveted national restoration without need for personal spiritual restoration. And as a result, they set expectations on Jesus' shoulders that Jesus never intended to carry in his flesh. They wanted a social savior. That's not what he came to do. D.A. Carson explains Jewish thought by saying, if the first prophet Moses had led the people out of slavery in Egypt, surely the second prophet would help them escape servitude to Rome John chapter 6 records the day of reckoning for this failed Jewish understanding of Messiah, which is exposed and rejected as the Apostle John reports, sign number four, the feeding of the 5,000, which also marks the high water moment of public support and acceptance for Jesus. John 6 captures the apex of Jesus' admiration among the people, the pinnacle of his popularity. John 6 records the Mount Everest of societal esteem for the would-be king which comes about between 6 and 12 months after Jesus leaves Jerusalem in John chapter 5. For your benefit, allow me to read the whole narrative and set it before you from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, where John says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now a large crowd was following him because they were seeing the signs which Jesus was doing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he was sitting down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what, was go what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. If Jesus came to be king, which he says he is a king, then this is the most opportune moment in his three-year ministry to pursue the throne of Israel as king, and he failed to take it. Why? Because Jesus was not about to become king on the terms of men. He was not interested in riding a wave of popularity built on his performance as healer of the sick and maker of the bread. 
Jesus was not interested in fighting Roman oppression as the people wanted him to. He was interested in preaching the gospel, the gospel that says, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus alone for salvation. Jesus wants genuine heart-level repentance from his followers. That's what he expects. And he wants men to love his message more than his miracles. He wants men to believe that he is God, that he is the Son of God. We just saw this in John 5, 24 in the last couple of weeks where Jesus said to the Jews in verse 24 of chapter 5, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, that one has eternal life and does not come into the judgment, but passes out of death into life. The apostle John did not fail to capture the full force of Jesus' message The whole of John's gospel is summarized in John 20, 31, where he says, but these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus will have a kingdom and will reign as king, but only over those who believe his message. Jesus' message is believe him. The apostle John's message is believe Jesus Friends, believe the message. Jesus is God. That's the gospel of John. Or believe because of the miracles. Jesus is God. That's the message of the gospel of John. Either way, friend, be believing and find eternal life in Jesus because failure to believe means perishing. That's where you're headed in unbelief. Eternal perishing. And so the message of the gospel of John is be believing in Jesus unto eternal life. In chapter 5, the Jews in Jerusalem didn't believe Jesus' miracle or his message. And within six months, Jesus makes his way north to the Sea of Galilee, which we read in John 6.1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. After these things is clearly a reference to the activity in Jerusalem, sign number three specifically in the attending events of John chapter five, especially as Jesus is preaching his own deity to the Jews in Jerusalem, telling them, I am God. John chapter five, I am God. Jesus spent time on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the most popular, the most accessible. At this time, Jesus and his disciples are looking for a break in the action, a moment to get away and talk among themselves. Why, you might ask? Matthew 14.10 reports the beheading of John the Baptist by Herod. Matthew 14.13 says, now when Jesus heard about John the Baptist, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, and when the crowds heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. The beheading of a close friend is great reason to retreat and ask, what are we doing, and why are we doing it? Jesus headed toward Bethsaida, which is on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of these gospels record this sign together. And they all confirmed that a large crowd was following Jesus. As we read in John 6, 2, now a large crowd was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was doing on those who were sick. What do we know about this crowd, this large crowd who's following him? There may be some genuine believers in this crowd. 
But the crowd is largely following Jesus to see more miracles. They're bandwagon fans. Not interested in the message, interested in the miracles. They're bandwagon fans of Jesus' ministry. The same way that many of you are bandwagon fans of the Buffalo Bills or the 49ers. You've seen a few wins and you get all excited. Maybe some of you are bandwagon fans in this way. It used to be the case that everyone had a Yeti cooler, but now this has fallen out of favor. Everyone has a Stanley now. Did you know that? (laughs) Everyone has a Stanley. John MacArthur has a great sense of character, the character of his crowd. He says, They were thrill-seekers who failed to grasp the true significance of Jesus' miraculous signs, which pointed unmistakably to him as the Son of God and Messiah. As such, they were the Galilean counterparts of the Judean false believers described in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. MacArthur says, This crowd flocked to see his works, but ultimately refused to accept his words. They sought the benefits of his power in their physical lives, but not in their spiritual lives. Connected, but perfectly disconnected. You can hardly blame Jesus for wanting relief from them. The way a nursing mother wants relief from changing and feeding twins at 2 a.m. They only love him for his performance. And he doesn't want to be simply on duty for their entertainment, So Jesus and the disciples, they take a break. So we read in John 6, 3, where John says, Then Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he was sitting down with his disciples. And for those of you who are interested in the topography of Bethsaida, the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, William Hendrickson would have you know, a hill actually rises up just behind this plain at Bethsaida so that all the requirements of the account as found in the Gospels are fully met. This is the only sign in the Gospel of John that is recorded in all four Gospels, and the requirements of it are fully met in Bethsaida, the plain, the mountain. Jesus found a moment of respite with the disciples on a mountain just outside of Bethsaida, retreating to mountains is common course, you might say, for Jesus. Matthew 5 records a sermon on the mount. Jesus first summoned the 12 disciples onto a mountain in Mark 13. 313. Jesus' transfiguration happened on a mountain in Matthew 17.1. The Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24.3 happened on the Mount of Olives. This retreat and fellowship for Jesus and his disciples was, however, short-lived. R.C. Sproul says, from that vantage point on the mountain, he could see the tremendous multitude that was following him. Here they come. Here they come, this unrelenting crowd of those who are captivated with the miracles, but not his message. The message so simple, so profound, so true. I am God. I am the Son of God. Believe in me. And they will not believe. They will not believe. The zeal of the crowd seems to have been heightened. And likely that is due to what John acknowledges in chapter 6, verse 4, where he says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. D.A. Carson says the Passover feast was the Palestinian, was to Palestinian Jews what the 4th of July is to Americans, or better, what the anniversary of the Battle of Boyne is to Loyalist Protestants in Northern Ireland. It was a rally point for intense 
nationalistic zeal. This goes some way to explaining, says Carson, the fervor that tried to force Jesus to become king in verse 15. The mention of the Jewish Passover feast is both a temporal consideration and a cultural consideration. Temporally, that is in relation to time, the month must be March or April for the celebration of the Passover, which is also a match for the green grass found in chapter 6, verse 10. Culturally, Passover would fill the nation with joy as they come together to celebrate and reflect on God's many provisions for this nation. God's provisions for Israel include more messianic promises. Gather together. Let's celebrate these. There's nationalistic zeal. And at the same time, Passover, A.D. 31, messianic expectations for Jesus were growing. Is this not the one? They would have been asking as they longed for a leader like Moses who would remove the unrighteous yoke of dictatorial oppression from their necks and free them from the bondage of Rome the same way Moses freed Israel from Egypt. Expectations were high. Cultural zeal was great. Jesus' miracles were many and they were public and they were awesome albeit they were likely one-to-one public miracles, not one-to-many public miracles. And thus the stage was set for a one-to-many public miracle that would push Galilean Jewish messianic zeal to its climax, to the maximum, which brings us to the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. We'll consider John's retelling of the feeding of the 5,000 under the following four headings. Number one, we'll look at the compassion of deity in verses 5 and 6. The compassion of deity in 5 and 6. Number two, we will look at the consistent disciples in verses 7 through 9. The consistent disciples in 7 through 9. And then we'll look at the colossal delivery, number three, the colossal delivery in verses 10 through 13. And then number four, the crowning departure in verses 14 and 15, the crowning departure. These will, four headings will carry us through the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus and the disciples needed time together alone to process the death of John the Baptist, all the signs Jesus was performing, and the pseudo-faith of the crowds that were following them. If they got that time... On the mountain in Bethsaida was short-lived. The crowd is coming. The crowd is coming. The crowd is bearing down, which gives Jesus the occasion to confirm for his disciples and the multitude of people pressing in on them again that he is God. And he will take this moment to prove to them he is God. We see Jesus is God as we come to the first consideration in our notes. Number one... The first consideration, the compassion of deity, the compassion of deity. In verses 5 and 6, we see the compassion of deity as we read John, 5, John 6, 5, where John says, therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. 
lifted up his eyes tells us that Jesus was not looking at the crowd, but was focused on teaching and training his disciples. However, Jesus' attention was piqued, and the swelling and swarming of the crowd required him to turn his gaze upon them, and he did. Jesus did not disregard or dismiss their presence. He didn't, as the kids would say, ghost them. And it was not likely the crowd would allow him to do that at all. But Jesus compassionately lifts up his eyes and looks upon their plight, their condition, their insistent gathering near to him. The Greek verb theomai is translated as the participle seeing. Theomai means to look at, to gaze upon, to discern with the eyes. It's only used 23 times in the New Testament, and it is used to speak of an intensity of looking, a concentration of seeing, a passion in observation. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 5, that the Pharisees do all their deeds to be theomai, to be noticed by men. The angels in Acts 1:11 ask the gathering crowd, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward the heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have theomai, as you have watched him, observed him go into heaven. The apostle John likes the Greek verb theomai and uses it seven times in his gospel. You may recall for instance, he says in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, Theomai, we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is beholding the crowd. He's noticing, he's observing, he's intently looking at this throng of people as they're coming to him. And the result is compassion, the compassion of deity, the love of God, the concern and care of a Savior for sinners. Notice also, Jesus' concern and care for this crowd is now, at this moment, while they are thrill-seekers and genuine unbelievers in Him, they come to use Him, and He loves them and shows compassion for them. They're His enemies headed to hell at this time, Jesus' compassion is for them and their good, that they might know spiritual truth leading to spiritual life inasmuch as they get a physical meal which he himself will provide to help their stomachs so that their minds might tune in. Jesus' compassion has a particular ring to it. It has a particular sound. His compassion comes out of him in the form of a question, a question which shows compassion for the people in the crowd and the disciples as well. What is the question? You see in verse 5, Jesus said to Philip, where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? This is a double compassion question. Compassion, number one, is for the crowd to be fed physically. Compassion, number two, is for the disciples to be tested spiritually. Jesus' compassion comes out of him very intentionally in the form of a question directed at Philip. Philip, who is from Bethsaida, which means house of fish, which is also the hometown of Andrew and Peter, according to John 1.44. So Philip is the guy who would best have the answer to the question, where can we buy bread? It's your hometown, man. Tell me where to find bread around here for these people. But Philip is also the disciple whose mind is most bound to the limitations of the physical world. He's the disciple who is quick to speak and slow to hear. 
He's a physical world pessimist, you might say. He's not very keen on spiritual world realities and possibilities, even in as much as he's been following Jesus' ministry for some time at this point. And so why on earth did Jesus call on Philip by name to resolve this major physical world problem of need for bread, which is the result of Jesus' great compassion? Is Jesus trying to highlight and make fun of Philip's many failures? Does Jesus need direction to the nearest Bethlehem, the nearest house of bread? Do you believe Jesus is facing a real enigma and conundrum about how to feed 5,000 people? Is, is Jesus observing a physical challenge for which he doesn't have an answer, but perhaps Philip, of all people, Philip, the pessimist, will have just the right answer because he grew up nearby and he happens to know the town real well? Is Jesus truly without knowledge about the sources of bread in and around Bethsaida? Jesus, you just get on your phone and just hit, you know, a couple of apps and all the local places and eateries will pop right up for you. The answer to these questions is no. The Apostle John provides the clarity for us in his exegetical commentary in verse 6, where he See, where we see Jesus' compassion extends to the spiritual strengthening of his disciples as John reports, and this he was saying to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. That's comforting, actually. John MacArthur says Jesus was not trying to discover what Philip was thinking since he already knew that. He says the question was intended to articulate the impossibility of any place where such bread could be secured. The question highlights the impossibility. Regarding Jesus' testing of Philip, MacArthur says, as he does with all of his people, the Lord poses the dilemma as a way of testing the disciples to strengthen their faith. How well did Philip and the disciples do on their spiritual test of faith? This question brings us to our second consideration in the feeding of the 5,000. Number two in your notes, the second consideration in the feeding of the 5,000. Number two, the consistent disciples in verses 7 through 9. The consistent disciples. Now with this title, with this consideration, I, I tried to go the direction of the positive title for us, right? The consistent disciples but it seems I've run the risk of sounding facetious, and I'm really not trying to be. I'm not trying to disparage our brothers, the disciples. I could have easily titled verses 7 through 9, the confused disciples, but that sounded too negative, so I went with the consistent disciples. Positively, Jesus' disciples have a consistent pattern of behavior that holds true to form in John 6, 7 through 9. In fact, it's a pattern and consistency that Jesus, even in this question, is seeking to change about these men. And the pattern is abandoning spiritual, supernatural solutions because of a pre-commitment to physical world man-made solutions, which is exactly what all of y'all do. I'll read it again. The pattern is abandoning spiritual supernatural solutions because of a pre-commitment to physical world man-made solutions. We see this as we read the results of Jesus' compassionate testing of the faith of Philip and the disciples where John reports in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. 
One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Now, the denarius was the standard Roman silver coin, which had been in economic circulation for over 200 years at this point. One denarius at this time, you know, minus or plus inflation, whatever that looked like for them, uh, one denarius was worth one day's wage. Quick math tells us that 200 denarii would be the equivalent of about eight months' worth of work. And according to Philip, who has taken a quick look at the crowd and done some estimating and made a simple physical world calculation, he comes up with the idea that 200 denarii will not be sufficient to feed everyone even a little piece of bread. James Boyce is quick to note that in Philip's reply, we have a confession of the failure of human resources for this situation. Thank you, Philip, for stating the obvious. Money won't really fix the problem here. The local bakeries can't handle the size of the order, and that is the picture of the physical world dilemma of feeding a crowd of over 5,000 men. But what does Philip's comment say about Philip himself? Did Philip pass or fail the spiritual test of faith that Jesus had given to him? Gerald Borchert says, Rather than focusing on Jesus, Philip's mental computer began to work like a cash register. And all he could think about was the total cash that would be needed to provide just a little bread for each person. R.C. Sproul says, Philip, who had been present for Jesus' many other miracles, couldn't see past the logistical difficulties here. Oh boy, logistical difficulties. And R.C. Sproul goes on to say, so Philip flunked the test. Philip was not the only one willing to speak physical truth, physical world truth, to Jesus' spiritually divine compassion. It seems by this time that Jesus and the disciples have met the crowd, are intermingling with the crowd and walking among the crowd, and it is now Andrew who is quite a bit more observant than the other disciples who has found something worth sharing. He's taken note of a young lad, a young lad holding five barley loaves and two fish. At this time, I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 4. 2 Kings 4. Look at verse 42. The specificity of barley loaves in our text in John is noted only in John's gospel account in chapter 6. D.A. Carson says, Barley loaves are the inexpensive bread of the poorer class. And R.C. Sproul says, One thing that is beyond dispute is that the boy was carrying the lowest quality of bread available to people at that time. Only those who live in poverty, for the most part, ate bread made from barley. These barley loaves, says Sproul, were small cakes, similar to the size of Twinkies, which I find extremely helpful because I know the size of Twinkie. <laughs> he says between the barley loaves and the two likely pickled sardines that the boy was holding, not eight-foot trout or something like this, he says, Sproul does, the provisions were even more meager than we would assume just by reading the words of the text. There's not a lot in this boy's hands. If Andrew would have simply reported the facts like he did and closed his mouth about what the boy had, he would have passed Jesus' spiritual test of faith with flying colors. But Andrew's heart was stuck in the physical world just like Philip. And Andrew adds his exasperation like a wet blanket, he adds it, onto the back of Jesus' compassion when he asks the question, but what are these for so many people? 
Oh, Philip, or so, oh, Andrew, oh, Andrew, that you would have read, Andrew, that you would have read in the last week or the last month or memorized 2 Kings 4.42, where we learn the man of God does not require 100% of the physical world provisions needed to feed any crowd. In fact, physical world provisions can be given by God supernaturally, on God's terms, as God desires, when God wants to, according to God's plan, as determined by God's will. This is what we read in 2 Kings 4.42, where you are now. In 2 Kings 4.42, Elijah is in Gilgal, feeding soup to the sons of the prophets as a famine has come upon the land. And unfortunately, one of the boys sliced up wild gourds for this pot of stew, which had his brothers and many others crying out in chapter 4, verse 40, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. That's always funny. I always like that one. Hopefully no one says that at your Super Bowl party. There's death in... No. Inasmuch as Elijah offers a quick remedy for the stew by adding flour to it and saving the stew, the best blessing of the day for the boys and Elijah was the knock at the door. We read in 2 Kings 4.42, Now a man came from Baal Shalisha, and, he brought, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of corn or grain in a sack. And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. And the attendant said, what? Will I give this, these 20 loaves of barley, before 100 men? But he said, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left over. Verse 44, so he gave it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of Yahweh. And the thought in everyone's mind must be, with God, nothing is impossible. With God, everything is possible. With God, every provision will be made that he wants made. With God, physical concerns are easy, especially as God goes about accomplishing all of the spiritual concerns that he has for his people. Turn back in your Bibles to John 6, verse 10. Andrew's faith failed, just like Philip's. His mind could not break out of the physical world paradigm. John MacArthur says, Andrew's faith, too, collapsed as he considered the enormity of the logistical problem. Andrew's response showed that he, like Philip and the rest of the twelve, failed the test of faith. Would their wet blanket, pessimistic, physical world only responses bring down Jesus' compassion? Is Jesus' compassion over because he's been told the physical world won't sustain your compassion, Jesus? Clearly, Jesus has been told, no, you can't do this. No, there's not enough bread. It can't happen. The crowd is just going to have to go hungry. Luke records just how adamant the disciples were in their opposition of Jesus' compassion in Luke 9, 12, where we read, Now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countrysides and obtain lodging and find provision, for here we are in a desolate place. 
Brothers and sisters, can you see it? Do you see it? Do you see the context? Do you see the paradigm? Do you see the place that Jesus has walked and ushered and navigated everybody into? It's a desolate place, people. It's a desolate place. There are no provisions. The people don't even know how to feed themselves. Who does? Jesus crafted the whole scenario to highlight his double compassion. Moreover, Jesus has done his level best to amplify the desperation of men from men's own testimony as he is about to showcase his power and authority as God, which brings us to our third consideration in the text this morning. Number three in your notes, the colossal delivery in verses 10 through 13. Number three, the colossal delivery in verses 10 through 13. Jesus' response to the colossal failure of faith of all the disciples is a simple request. He doesn't get angry with them. He doesn't begin to preach at them. He simply steps past all of their physical world negativity and gives the command that advances his care and compassion for the crowd that had gathered and for the 12. We read in chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. This, friends, is a glorious, public, extensive miracle. Based on his compassion, and power as God, Jesus multiplies the barley loaves of the little boy for a crowd of over 5,000 men. This is nothing less than divine intervention. It's inexplicable, extraordinary, phenomenal. This is sign number four. The feeding of the 5,000 performed by Jesus, retold intentionally by the Apostle John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why he did the miracle. That's the point of retelling it in John. That's why I'm preaching it today, so that you would believe Jesus is God. When he wants to deliver, when he wants to supply, he will do it on his terms. Will you live in unbelief? Will you rebel against Jesus and have it your way? Or will you turn to the one who is the Savior of the world and allow him to have it his way? In that will be provision for you. Believe. Believe. Sign number four, the feeding of the 5,000. Please know also that 5,000 is simply the number of men in the audience. They came with wives and children, which brings a total number of people fed up between fifteen and 20,000 people. Jesus planned for all to be seated in green grass, at springtime in Bethsaida on the Galilean seashore, Jesus himself began the distribution of the barley loaves and the fish. As they were distributed, they were also multiplied. What did this multiplication look like, you might ask? It's as if they're the tearing of the bread in half. And tearing of the bread in half, you end up with the two pieces larger than you started with. That's just my guess. In the action of the tearing... There's multiplication. 
Either way, the bread proved to be more than sufficient for everyone who gets all that they needed and then some, which is another way of saying that Jesus' supernatural provision of the barley bread, it wasn't meager. Friends, this distribution of the barley and the fish was lavish. It was in excess, which is exactly what Jesus' salvation of us is when he gives us faith to believe and causes us to have eternal life. His salvation is in excess, and it's not a surprise here that when they go to eat the fish and the bread, they're eating in excess, lavishly. They were told to take as much as they wanted. John reports they were filled, satiated, satisfied. The excess was collected by the disciples. Twelve baskets were filled. Have you considered all that we've learned about Jesus in sign four? That's the point. Learn something about Jesus in sign four. Maybe there's more to learn. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 16. Exodus 16. We've learned about Jesus' compassion in John 6. As deity, he is God and he cares. He cares for unbelievers in this crowd. He cares for thrill seekers. He cares for bandwagon fans. He wants them to believe. He will give bread to satisfy hunger and he will speak the words of life to satisfy the soul. We've seen Jesus' authority in John 6, his grace, his generosity. We've seen his control, his sovereignty, his omnipotence, his power to accomplish his divine will. We've seen it all. John 6, this height, this pinnacle moment of Jesus' earthly ministry. The feeding of the 5,000 is not a moral story about a boy who sacrificed his lunch. It's not a social generosity story where everyone opens their lunchbox to share with their neighbor. D.A. Carson says, this is not an ethical lesson on how to shame people into sharing their food. Scholars have tried to reduce this phenomenal, astonishing, miraculous story of Jesus supernaturally feeding 15,000 people and more. They've tried to reduce it to a physically possible and probable moral, ethical, and social lesson so as to remove the personal discomfort that they feel about Jesus breaking the laws of physics to accomplish his will. They're embarrassed by Jesus. Scholars, people who claim Christ, embarrassed by Jesus, embarrassed by the supernatural. Sadly, such foolish scholars have found a large audience in evangelicalism today who appreciate their efforts to explain away the supernatural in favor of a physical world rationalization of how you can feed 15,000 people bread and fish. All of which, all this reasoning, all this rationalization, it strips from you, if you listen to this garbage, it strips from you what the text is trying to communicate. The text is telling you, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is God. And would you allow some scholar to tell you that this is just a moral, ethical lesson and strip from you the truth of John 6? Jesus is God. Don't let anybody take away that truth from you. That's what John is revealing to us. Jesus is God. Brothers and sisters, our joy is not in some physical world rationalization of this text to water down the supernatural. Our joy is in knowing Jesus is God, full of power, authority, grace, and compassion. That's what we're learning in John 6, 1 through 13. We have one more lesson to learn from the text as well. 
What do you make of Jesus asking for the disciples to collect up the leftovers? You thought about this one? What's this all about? William Hendrickson says, infinite resources are no excuse for waste. Wastefulness is sinfulness. That's what Hendrickson says. That's why Jesus collected up the leftovers. John MacArthur says, God's abundant provision was no excuse for wasting resources. Brothers and sisters, was the collection of the leftovers a call for environmentalism? Was Jesus the first big proponent of reduce, reuse, recycle 2,000 years ago? Was the great concern that the extras would be wasted if left with the crowd? Doesn't it seem more fitting in the context of lavish provision to leave the leftovers with the people? Let them take a loaf of bread or two home with them? Maybe have some later in the evening? What's wrong with sending each man off with a little bedtime snack? Leave the leftovers for the people. You're in Exodus 16, where Israel has fled Egypt and is on the road to Mount Sinai. And as you know well, the Israelites are whiners and grumblers and complainers about the Lord's provision for them, even as they are on the road of freedom, having been extracted by the power of God out of Egypt. We read their complaining in chapter 16 of Exodus, verse 3. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and we ate bread by the full. For you have brought us out of this wilderness to put this whole assembly to death with hunger. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law Now it will be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily. What was that, brothers and sisters? What did we just read? Why did the Lord command only one day's portion to be collected? What does the text say? Why not allow every portion on the ground that's been provided by God to not go wasted? Why not gather up everything that's fallen on the ground and store it for later? Why not save all the provision that's laying, all the manna laying all over the place? Why not save it? Why couldn't families take in the extra manna and just have a little bit more, a little little extra, a little something on the side? Certainly it wasn't for environmental reasons. The Lord here is not concerned about extra manna laying around on the ground, which I'm sure extra manna could be seen lying around in abundance. The reason given is made clear by the Lord who says one day's portion only, verse 4, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law. Now we're on to something, something that's helpful to understand. Jesus commanded the disciples to collect the extra bread. And my contention is that Jesus wanted to test the crowd. They don't get to take any extras home. He fed them a buffet of bread and fish just like you could go and eat at Golden Corral Buffet. But at Golden Corral, you don't get to put a plate together as big as a doggy bag and dump it into a sack and walk away with leftovers. The issue is, will they walk in my law? That's the issue. Will they walk in my law? Are they listening to my commands? Do they want the miracles or the message? Do they hear my word? Do they believe me? How did the Israelites do? 
And what would happen if they disobeyed and kept more than they were allowed? Exodus 16, 18 is where Moses says, and they measured it with an omer. That is, they took a specific measurement for each person that they would go out and get an omer. Only collect an omer's worth per person. And he who gathered much had no excess. And he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until the morning. What? And let no man leave any of it until the morning. Hmm. But they didn't listen to Moses. And some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. And so they gathered it by morning. They gathered it morning by morning. Every man as much as he should eat. And the sun would grow hot, and the rest outside would melt. Brothers and sisters, do you see this? Some people thought that taking extra would be helpful for them, that they would have more, that there would be a little extra provision just in case they got hungry, just in case one of the kids needed a little something extra, that they had more. They wanted to have extra in their homes for the sake of their eyes, for the sake of their bellies, for the sake of their comfort, for their peace. They wanted to have a little more, a little extra. But taking extra actually was hurtful to them Who wants to wake up with foul-smelling worm bread in their tent? Okay, so then what's the point of all of this? Deuteronomy 8.3 is where Moses says, listen, and God humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. Turn back in your Bibles to John 6, 13. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not have the disciples collect the leftovers to prevent wastefulness. This verse cannot be used to make Jesus a shining example of first century environmentalism. Jesus had the disciples collect the leftovers, I believe, for the sake of his word. He didn't want the audience leaving with bonus physical bread. He wanted this crowd consumed with the spiritual bread that he was sharing with them in his words. What are the chances if they kept the bread, friends? What are the chances if they kept the bread? It would have become foul that night and bread worms in the morning. I would bet the chances are really good that their extra bread would have been full of worms by morning. If this is the reason for Jesus to have the disciples collect up all the leftovers, which seems reasonable, we would see again, even in the collecting up of the leftovers, more compassion from Jesus for this crowd. He did everything he could do to keep them focused on the main thing. My word, believe me. See the signs that I'm doing. Hear my word. Know that I am God. One thing is certain. No one in the crowd objected to Jesus' request to gather up the extras. I would have. I'd have been saying, no, that was good. I want to keep that piece for me for later. That's what I would do. No one complained. And the disciples quickly obeyed Jesus' command to collect up the leftovers, and they filled the 12 baskets, not because 12 is symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, but simply because there were 12 disciples who each got involved with collecting in their own basket. This is a colossal collection of bread after a colossal delivery of bread. This is the biggest sign of Jesus' ministry to this moment. 
as he has supernaturally impacted the lives of over 15,000 people in one evening. Their bellies, minds, and hearts are satiated with the joy only Jesus can bring, though many are still not believing. And though they are not believing, they are themselves still scheming and planning at how Jesus can keep them happy, healthy, and hopeful for years to come, which brings us to point number four in our lesson this morning. Our fourth consideration, number four in your notes, verses 14 and 15, the crowning departure. Number four in your notes, the crowning departure. What was the outcome of Jesus' colossal delivery of bread to 15,000 people? How well did this work out for him and the crowd? What did the crowd take away? Were they both physically and spiritually satisfied? We read in John 6.14 where John reports, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And if we just stop right there, brothers and sisters, we can rejoice with the crowd. Yes! They get it. They understand. They get that Jesus is the prophet sent from God. Feeding the 5,000 has worked perfectly to cause the crowd to understand Jesus is God. They're saved. Don't you see it in the text? These are the words of believers. These people will be in heaven with us. Praise God. This is wonderful, isn't it? Isn't this right? Is it right? Sure, this is right. If you just stop reading the Bible... These are the right words. Are they said with the right heart motivations? What is happening in the hearts of the Jews in this crowd? Well, Jesus knows their hearts. He knows them very well. He creates people. He made us. Jesus shared with the Apostle John exactly what was happening in the hearts of these Jews, whose words were with Jesus, but their hearts were far from him. John reports the heart condition of the crowd in verse 15, saying, So Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus knew the heart and had seen the look in the face before that says, I'm with you, but only if you want to do what I want you to do. This is exactly the same mindset that Jesus ran into when tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. D.A. Carson says, perhaps Jesus recognized in the mob's enthusiastic but unwelcome attention the same temptation that he had confronted in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 8 through 10 when he was tempted by Satan. Carson says, the reason Jesus withdrew was his knowledge, supernatural or merely insightful, that the crowds intended to come and make him king by force. Was Jesus a king? Was this his crowning moment? Why choose evacuation instead of coronation? Did he fail to recognize it was his time to be crowned? Not at all. You see, the only crown Jesus allows men to put on his head is a crown of thorns, which will happen in one year's time. And so we see in the text Jesus' crowning departure. We see in the text Jesus' crowning departure. This is not his time. The hearts of this people are not with him. This is not the will of his father. The large crowd is full of selfish, thrill-seeking unbelievers from whom Jesus needs another personal retreat. At the same time, Jesus is the king. The very next year, he tells Pilate in John 18, 37, you yourself, Pilate, said, I am a king. 
For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What becomes painfully obvious about this large crowd in Bethsaida one year earlier is that inasmuch as they ate well, they did not listen well. Inasmuch as they filled their bellies, they closed their ears. Inasmuch as they were satisfied in their stomachs, they were not satisfied with Jesus in their souls. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19.11. Revelation 19.11. R.C. Sproul says Jesus would have none of it. Just as he refused Satan's offer to make him ruler of the world in Matthew 4.8, he rejected this human attempt to crown him and he left the scene. Jesus does not have the physical world political aspirations of the Jews in the first century. Jesus has spiritual world heart transformation aspirations for all of those whom the Father has given to him that he would be the one causing them to believe in him. That's Jesus' aspiration. We'll see that more in John chapter 6 as it unfolds. His desire is to seek and to save his lost his own possessions, the one the Father has given to him. He is not about to come and start an insurrection. Jesus is the King of Israel, but will never be crowned King by men on men's terms. He has too much integrity, too much to look forward to for men, sinful as they are, to crown him king on their terms. Won't do it, won't play ball. John MacArthur says, Jesus, however, refused to be forcibly made king on their selfish terms. Therefore, he sent the disciples away by boat and dispersed the crowd and withdrew again to the mountains by himself alone. So Jesus makes a crowning departure. He goes on retreat in isolation. What did Jesus do with that time? Well, I hope that Jesus contemplated the glory of Calvary's cross in one year's time on which he would be nailed and he would save his people from their sins. And I hope also that Jesus thought in this moment of retreat away from this crowd that he thought about the glory of his second coming and his reign as king of Israel and all the earth, which sounds like this from Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on the white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of his, the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, this is the grand and glorious coronation of our King. This one right here, this is far superior than the thought of simply defeating the Romans in the first century and having a social king provide bread for each family. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our king now, and he will be king over Israel at his second coming. Hopefully, you are wondering how must sign number four, the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus' compassion to the crowd impact my life? 
I would have you understand number one. Sign number four should cause you to respond well to me saying to you this. Number one, do not remain in unbelief. Jesus knows your heart. Your sinful rebellion against him will cause you to perish in hell for all of eternity. He comes back in wrath and justice and slays the unrighteous and the wicked. And there will be a day at the great white throne judgment when your deeds will be presented to you. And if you don't believe, you will go to hell forever. And so do not remain in unbelief. Repent today. Be believing. Know that Jesus is God and he is Savior. Number two, I would have you respond to this. Do not fabricate a Jesus of your own understanding. Don't make up a Jesus of your own understanding. Study his word and come to know him on his terms You might find, like the disciples will next week, Jesus will come in power during your storm. Number three, do not remain stuck in physical world thinking. You need to understand the spiritual world and the battlefield on which we've been called to live and play as believers in Jesus. Play ball, brothers and sisters, in the spiritual world so you know how Jesus contends with the issues of the physical world. What does this mean? Do battle in the spiritual world? Well, immediately it should come to your mind, I need to be in church with the brothers and sisters, reading my Bible, praying, studying, memorizing, meditating. All of these, yes. Do battle. Know the spiritual world. Number four, do not follow pretenders in our faith. Do not follow pretenders in our faith. Pretenders are all around us. Jesus knows the hearts of pretend believers. Do you know their fruits? He knows their heart. Do you know their fruits, the fruits of pretenders? Because Scripture tells us savage wolves will come in to deceive the elect of God. Do not be deceived. Do not be pretending in your Christianity. And number five, I'm going to ask a question of you, particularly those of you who are believers. Do you have compassion? Do you have the compassion of Jesus for your enemies? Do you have the compassion of Jesus even for those in your own home? Are you willing to sacrifice your time, effort, resources, energy to present the gospel to the lost at your own dime, on your own expense, Are you prepared for a powerful presentation? Have you studied the word? Do you know what's most needful for unbelievers to hear? Are you prepared in your presentation for rejection? You know, compassion has a price tag, don't you? Compassion has a price tag. Are you willing to pay it? Number six, do you need yourself to retreat? And to get your thoughts away from crowds of people? Do you need to send a brother or a friend or a family away for a retreat that's been engaged in battle at length? Do you need to get well for the fight? Do it. And return and engage. Return and engage. And number seven, do you need signs to believe in Jesus? Do you need signs? And the answer to this question, friends, is no. You don't need any signs. You have the Word of God. 
you have scripture, which is better for you than bread. In fact, I think you understand from today's lesson, this bread is life. This is what you need to feast on. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time today in your word. We ask that you would bless your word as it's communicated to our hearts and minds, that it would make an impact, it would cause a difference, a change, that bad theology, bad thoughts and ideas about Jesus, salvation, scripture would be thrown out of us, that all of the many ways in which Satan has deceived and even captured us in deception would be cast out of us so that we might walk before you in righteousness and holiness of the truth, that we might those be those who do practice living in spirit and truth. Lord Jesus, we honor you. We recognize the despair that would come upon you and cause you to retreat, the unbelief of this crowd, their failed, wicked, sinful intentions, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that wherever we have had these failed, wicked intentions with you and our relationship with you, that we would repent right now and that we would receive your forgiveness and that we would see you exactly as you want to be seen and that we would know you according to what your scripture reveals. So help us with this, that we would live before you in righteousness and holiness of the truth all the days of our life. We praise you. What an apex moment. What a climax in your ministry. And we look forward to seeing more of how you will prove to us that you are God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.